Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Future Food Weekly. Um, and before we get started, I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you to everyone who has been listening to this podcast and supporting us and, and come on the journey with us. Um, myself, Sonali, your, your host, and Steve, your co-host, we're really excited that we've been able to grow together on this journey and we love hearing the feedback and it's always so nice when people take a moment and write to us and tell us that they enjoyed our discussion and hopefully um, that will keep going. So thanks everyone for listening. Um, hey, Steve, how are you? I am good. And I, I'll, I'll echo what you said. I, I, I mentioned it to you, but I've had some uh, conversations over the past few weeks and it, it's always super cool when it starts off with someone saying that they listen and they appreciate what we're talking about. And because we don't know if we, if we don't hear from you, I'm, I'm just hoping that, that, that you guys, that the listeners like it. And so it's, it's super nice when we hear it and, and we love it, love all the support, but, but yeah, all good on my end. Awesome. Um, how's the snow over there in New York? It, it, it's good. It was, um, I didn't, I didn't think we'd get any, any snow like this again for the rest of the winter, but we got like, at least where I am, like probably about like eight inches and it was pretty, it was fun. As you know, I, I have two little kids so we can play in it, but it was, it's, it was, it was a good time. That's so nice. Over here, we had our very typical um, Hong Kong cold front before Chinese new year. And then the year of the dragon started and now we're, the weather is back to being, let's put it this way, like hot again, or like warm, it's getting warmer. So I think spring is arriving here. Well, I'm jealous of that. Snow is cool, but then you're just left with it being really, really cold. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, every week I'm always thinking, you know, what's going to be the news this week, but boy, this week it's really packed. The, the newsletter is just absolutely overflowing with news stories and um, really fun. The big story this week was, uh, was broken and written by yours truly, which is kind of, which is kind of fun. So um, over the weekend, there was Nestle R&D US made a, a post on social media about having put out their first animal-free protein powder under the Orgain brand, which Nestle bought a controlling stake in a couple, uh, a couple of years before. And uh, so this is a whey protein powder made with animal-free precision fermentation uh, begotten whey. So it's, a, it's you know, it's pretty big deal. Um, Steve actually... I got, I got you to share a comment in the article and we can talk more about, you know, what you said. Um, it, it's a, I, I, I dove pretty deep for the story to understand more about, you know, who had Nestle worked with to, to make the way. And so far they're keeping, they're staying mom on it. Uh, we, we reached out to them and we today got, got the reply that they're not, they're not sharing any more details about who it is. We know for a fact that in 2022, they had an R&D partnership with Perfect Day and they came out with a product called Kawabunga, which was a milk, like a milk drink product for aimed at, at kids and 
and and you know young people, um, which doesn't seem to still be on shelves, but there is no confirmation of whether the way that they're using is by perfect day. Um, it's interesting because Orgain has a whole range of different whey powders. So you've got grass-fed whey, they've got vegan whey, and now they've got animal-free whey. Um, the only other whey that I could find on sale that was animal-free is my protein has a whey powder that is using perfect days. Uh, way, but other than that, it, there, there, you know, this is this is a unique, a unique launch. Um, they say on the website that it's very, it's very much a limited edition launch. We did ask Nestle, you know, any plans to expand, add more flavors. This is a chocolate fudge flavor, um, and Nestle declined to to give many more details. The only thing they did tell us is that while it is available on the website, there is a plan to do a small launch at a, at a grocery store in the US, but they, they haven't shared you know, where, when, what the store is. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot about kind of the, what's interesting about this launch is it's, it's, it's a nutrition launch, but it's also sustain, there's a sustainability play. And um, in the article, you know, I, I definitely, wrote about how Nestle is now, you know, Nestle being a Swiss company um, in Europe, it, there's a lot of movement in Europe to, to kind of be a lot more transparent and clear about scope three emissions and to, to you know, de-emission, everybody wants to de-emission their supply chain. So, you know, there's definitely a, a bigger angle at play in terms of, you know, figuring out if you, your ingredient profiles can, can be, ha, can have a lower emission footprint. So it's very interesting. Um, you know, what do, what do you think, Steve? I'm gonna let you share your comment that you, you gave me to put in the article. What, what, what did you think about this, this launch? Yeah, I mean, to echo what I, what I said in the article, uh, let's, I'll start with that. It's basically like, this is super exciting, no matter, no matter what, whether they went with Perfect Day's way or another startup's way, or they did it themselves, this is this is an exciting thing because this is a huge multinational firm, biggest CPG firm in, in conglomerate in the world, and and they put out put out a precision fermentation dairy product. So super exciting, really cool. I know it's limited edition, but they're going to get consumer feedback. They're going to they're going to learn from this and and hopefully continue to try to scale it up, but. As an investor, all I do is look at startups in the space, right? And and we've backed some companies doing precision fermentation, dairy, and I've talked with probably 90 plus percent of them globally. And if this is not, this was not done with Perfect Day or one of the the competitors who who make precision fermentation way, then this is a wake up call to the entire startup world where there's been this assumption that the large multinational incumbents are going to kind of test the waters, work with startups and, and, and not put too much money into it themselves. And if one of the players has a breakthrough, if the startups have a breakthrough, they'll just acquire them. And this is kind of an example, again, only if they did it themselves, but if Nestle did do this themselves in-house or working with a CMO third party to, to make this product, 
then that means they're not going to wait to to acquire a company. Basically, I think what I said in the article is they're not going to innovate through acquisition. Um, and that would be very telling for the space. And startups would need to think very carefully about what their scale-up plans are then uh, if, if the if the exit path is not just what's exit to a large strategic. So again, we don't know, like we don't actually like Nestle hasn't confirmed anything. I, I know some people at Nestle, I reached out and they didn't know, or they acted aloof <laughs> and they, they, they're lying and said they didn't know. Um, but it's really interesting on separately from that. I, I had to buy it, right? Like I, <laughs> it's in the U S so I had to have the opportunity to buy it. So I bought it. I tried it. It tastes like a whey, whey protein powder. I've had protein shakes daily for almost 20 years at this point. And it's only been the last however many years that I've been vegan that I don't have whey protein anymore. But if you've had them over and over, you know the taste of whey. It tastes like a whey protein powder. So it's, it's fine on that end. But what I found, two things that I found really interesting. One is, oh my God, is this expensive? <laughs> um, I I didn't really check the size of the the protein tub that I was going to be getting just because I knew that didn't matter. I just wanted to try it. But I've, I've never even seen a protein tub that's this small. It's like the size of a large drink versus like the really big protein tubs that you see usually that, that I usually buy. Um, so cost is crazy high. Um, and then I was looking at Twitter and social media and seeing what people were saying in comment section just to see. And the confusion of what this is, is just ubiquitous. No, most people have no idea what this is. And then I even found it funny where some people were trying to act like they were knowledgeable on it. And they were, they were saying, basically, they were basically showing that they were thinking that this was cultivated technology. So like cell-based versus precision fermentation, which is just different. And it's, I'm not even judging really. It's just more of proof that consumer education has to happen because no one has any clue what, what this is. So we could talk about this forever, but it's just so many interesting things coming out of this. Yep. Um, so in the article, we, we did a comparison per ounce um, so that it was very clear that because obviously Orgain now has these three products, right? So the vegan protein, the whey protein and the better way with, with the precision fermentation angle. And um, yeah, the, the better way is double the vegan protein per ounce and just under double the, the grass-fed whey, the pasture-fed grass-fed whey. So just, just as a comparison. It's interesting though, if you look at the ingredient labels, um, the products are, are very similar in terms of what else is in there. It's really just the way and where it's sourced or the protein in the case of the vegan one. Um, the other thing that's interesting, if we're tr going back to you know, the point you made about whether this was developed in-house or not, one of, the, you know, one of the counter arguments to that is, well, in the, so this can't be sold in, in Europe because it wouldn't have regulatory approval. Um, this, so this is a US only product. And in order to be sold in the U.S., it's got to have a uh, grass generally regarded, regarded as safe approval. And there aren't like it, there aren't that many companies that have grass approval for precision fermentation whey. 
there's basically less than a handful. You know, perfect day, remilk, imaginary, just for way, that's about it. So, um, you know, we we were trying to dig on that and figure out, you know, did Nestle kind of figure or ordain, did they apply for their own grass approval and, and you know, just wasn't announced? So far, we haven't been able to confirm that. So it, it's not, it's not unlimited possibility for who would have produced the way on this timeline and and you know in a manner that was because they're selling it to the public so it has to have grass approval so there you go so anyway we'll we'll keep updating the story um we had reached out to nestle with about 12 different questions and they came back today but they they chose not to say much more than what was on the website page there wasn't even a press release so this was not a, a giant announcement. It was one social media post and then there's the Orgain website that has information. So more to come. Yeah, up. and I'd love to understand like what they're trying to learn with this. Cause like for them, this is, I'd imagine this is really just like a, a learning opportunity. We're just testing the market, seeing what consumers think and say. And I mean, I'd imagine they're not even thinking of it from like a pricing standpoint because they're probably just like, yeah, this is super expensive and we'll, we'll lower the price at some point. So I, I, I just, I would love to be on the, a fly on the wall of those, those conversations. Well, I, I can't answer that. Um, I can't answer why they did it because I did ask them and here's what they said. The primary goal of the test is to get feedback from consumers on communication and product attributes. Do the concept, the value proposition and communication around nutrition and sustainability resonate well with consumers. That's their exact quote when I asked. Well, there you go. What was the mission? So you, so, you are a fly on the wall. So that's perfect. And that makes a lot of sense. And I, I like a lot of the, the messaging they have, but do consumers. I, and I guess we'll, we'll find out. But yeah. So, and there you go, folks. That's why it's important to know the fly on the wall, which is Sonali. <laughs> no, no, that's why it's important to do your homework and go back to the company. And um, they're very nice. The, the, I really like the comms team at, at, at Nestle and, you know, they're very professional. Um, and, you know, they said what they could say, which is great. And, um, you know, th they also did give me a, a quote around sustainability and said that lowering emissions of our food product is at the core of achieving our net zero goals, adding more plant-based brands, as well as plant-based options to our existing brands is an important element of this work. I, my prediction is that you will see a lot more big food companies saying the same thing or acting in the same way. Because folks, I mean, you know, some something that some of us in the industry have known and said for for a while now, you, we, we're, you're not reaching your net zero goals without lowering the emissions on, on your food on your food products. And that means altering the animal, the livestock animal component, whether it's replacing it with a, a fermented version or, 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 or selling more plant-based in lieu of the, of the conventional animal sources. I mean, there's just, you know, there, there aren't 80 million ways to get to Rome here. So. A hundred percent. So yeah, it's, it's, it's good good story and, and, you know, good, good, good launch and definitely one to watch. And obviously Nestle being such a big player, 
Um, it's, it's really interesting. So what else caught your eye this week? So there's a crazy amount of stuff in this newsletter, which is a really fun one to read. But I, I did want to talk about that. You have a whole section on it, the, the hot topic of nature's ozempic. And there's a couple of stories in here. One is a really good interview that you did with Mark Washington, who's the CEO of Supergut, um, which is a, a CPG brand out there that um, has basically gut positive products out there. And then there's another story that says that Unilever is hoping to reach 1.5 billion uh, euros in annual sales from their plant-based products. Um, and But they do call out this idea that, that they want those sales to be there to focus on enhancing the gut microbiome and boost consumer health. So both of these have a very big focus on, on the gut, the gut microbiome and how that impacts health. And, and then even comparing it to like Ozempic or GLP-1 drugs that have now become all the rage, especially in the, in the US. Um, and I just think it's, it's a really interesting topic. I, I put a, a post out there on LinkedIn just to get some information, but also see what people were talking about. And I took a really like a, a very niche angle with it where I was saying, well, I wonder if people who are on GLP-1 drugs or even taking things that are quote unquote nature's ozempic, so like a, a super gut or something like that, I wonder if that impacts animal product consumption. So maybe those people were eating a lot of animal products before, they were really unhealthy, and now they're reducing calorie consumption by upwards of 15% and blah, 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 blah. But basically just, I wonder if this is reducing animal product consumption. And that was a very specific take, but there's so many angles here of how this is going to impact how people are eating. Are they limiting calories only while they're on it and then they bounce back or and that after they're off of it? Or are they going to be using super gut and other products like that or other plant-based products as complementary to the actual GLP-1 drugs so that there is no bounce back. Um, there's just a lot that I think is really interesting. But either way, I think it's highlighting this underlying trend that I've just been seeing nonstop, which is the gut microbiome is really, really hot right now. And um I just felt like it was worth bringing up. And I, I really liked the, the the interview that you did with uh, with Mark Washington. So it's a it's an yeah, interesting no. one. But what are you what, how are no, you I'm, thinking I'm, about this? I'm so glad you brought this up. So first of all, for everyone listening, like we are we, we've got a whole Ozempic series already on Green Queen. It's you know, just like we went deep onto blended meats, Ozempic is is one of our key focus areas um, uh, for content series, and we've got at least four or five pieces already there. Um, I don't think you can, you can write about Ozempic without interviewing Mark Washington, who is the CEO of this, this company called Supergut, probably the, the most interesting food based, uh, uh, GLP one boosting company out there right now in, in the, in the U S, um, shout out to the lovely Rachel Conrad for putting me in touch with Mark. Um, the interview is super long and there was so much more we could have put into the piece. Uh, it was a really long interview. I was, we were on the phone for almost an hour and a half. He's a, he's an absolute superstar. I also have to say he, you know, the, the title of the piece is like Mark is me, Mark Washington is meeting the moment and he's been at this for five years. 
And, and if you read the piece, there's a really personal story about why he got into this. It's it's because of a family member that, that you know, had a tragic uh, story. So it's very personal for him. And he's been doing this for a while. And it, it it's almost like his work converged with the Ozempic megatrend that has just exploded, particularly in the US. And it's very important to explain that in the US, Ozempic is, is what's leading the conversation versus if you look at a market like the UK, the, the topic of gut health rather than GLP-1 and, and Ozempic has been, has been really gaining steam in the last 12 months. And in the UK, there's a fellow called uh, Tim Spector, who's written this book all about gut health and the gut microbiome. And then he, he launched this app called the Zoe app, which is an app that helps you um, basically adapt your diet to be the right diet for optimizing your gut health and your own personal needs. And basically the whole, you know, the whole thing is, you know, your gut microbiome is the most important thing for your health and everybody's gut microbiome is different. And so you need a diet that's tailored to what your needs are. And that is converging with this massive trend in the US around Ozempic. And so, you know, Danish company Novo Nordisk has come out with this drug. Now there's other drug companies that have it. These drugs that are basically helping your body to, to basically lose weight, uh, lessen your appetite, curb your cravings, um, all kinds of things. And it's all surrounding these GLP-1 hormones that are activated by certain things in your gut. And so the idea is that if you eat these kind of prebiotic or, or, or um, resistant starch, fiber, heavy foods, you're able to kind of boost GLP-1 naturally without needing the drug. And so, you know, in the conversation with Mark, we obviously ask him, you know, are you, are you looking to replace these drugs? Are you competing with these drugs? And, and you know, his answer is not at all, you know, it's it very much like the word you use, Steve, which is complementary. but also really interesting is that when you're on these drugs, you're, you're less hungry. And so there's also this element of needing to cover all your nutrition bases, which if you consume super gut products while you're while you're on the drugs can that can help you also meet all your nutrient needs so it's it's very complex and it's not it's not just an either or situation and and you know there are certain people that are going to want to stay on the drug for maintenance reasons for a long time there are other people that are going to go on the drug and then go off the drug and but essentially super gut is the poster child for this like new category of foods which are basically foods that are that have certain blends of, of good for you fiber that help you boost these GLP-1 hormones. And, and, and the reason we all, you know, we need it so much is because essentially 70% of people in the United States are overweight. I think it's between 30 or 40 that are clinically obese. And most of these people have what, what you could basically uh, call metabolic syndrome where your body doesn't work anymore. And, you know, it doesn't essentially use the fuel that you're giving it the, the right way. And it ends up in, a, in this cycle of just like weight gain, whether you diet or whether you exercise or whatever. And so these drugs are sort of a reset. 
And it's just, it's just fascinating. It's going to, there was a, there was an article in the, I don't know if it was in the Wall Street Journal this week where the, I think it was the CEO of Novo Nordisk, the drug maker said he has all these CEOs of big food companies calling him and saying, hey, you know, should I be worried? Like, how is this going to impact my business? So there's all these questions right now, right? Like, what are, what is big food going to do? Are we going to snack less? There's also a whole kind of conversation around alcohol because a lot of these drugs, the secondary effects we're seeing is it, it takes away kind of addictive behavior or it seems to. And so people are drinking less. And, you know, you talked about whether they're eating animal products less. Well, what we do know is they're eating fried food less and junk food less. So anything that falls under animal foods and junk food would, would reduce in consumption. But on the other hand, there seems to be an appetite for healthy whole foods. And for some people that will also include high quality animal foods. So it's, it's interesting. It's just such a, it's such a sea change. And, and it it really is. And, And I think you hit on such an interesting topic too, of like, it's not just like the same story worldwide like what like what's going to resonate with consumers in the u.s is going to be very different than what's going to resonate with consumers in the uk and like and like i, I talked to a uk-based company that I, they're not super gut but like in my mind i'm kind of like comparing it to that it's called myota and i think that's how i pronounce it but they're 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 trying their own thing and it's all trying to be clinically proven and all that and they're not saying their nature is ozempic but they're 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 not not right and um and it's just, but like in the UK, if you say this is, this is targeting people who are overweight and obese, it might not resonate as much as it is going to be in, in, in the US. So um, it's just super interesting. I like, I can't, I honestly can't get enough of this, this topic and this content. Um, so just really, really, really cool. But Anyway, what, 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 beyond that, what did you find interesting in, uh, in the newsletter this week? So this one is less on a product or a founder. This is a more kind of, uh, this is more about consumer behavior and, and kind of food system trends. There was a fascinating report, shout out to my, my researcher and project manager, Marlana Mollerich, who, who, who sent me this report. So it was done by a UK think tank called Green Alliance. And the report is called Crossing the Divide. And it's essentially, um, uh, 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 basically, uh, it, lays, it lays out four worldviews for the future of agriculture. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. So they, the four worldviews are the traditionalists, the agroecologists, the techno-vegans, and the sustainable intensifiers. And then it breaks down kind of for each one, what are the, what's important for each one. So for example, you know, who's, who's pro-tech and who's not pro-tech? Who is advocating meat consumption and who's not? Who is, um, you know, interested in things like land sharing versus seeing food produ- production as essential to the future of nature? It, it's, it's really quite interesting. And, and the point of the report at the end is, they're trying to figure out which combination of worldviews would would bring about the biggest impact. Um, And what's really interesting is that the techno-vegan and agroecologist worldview seems to have um, one of the best potential, it has the best potential for things like environmental impact, 
um, support dietary change needed to reach net zero and public perception. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's too much to get into here. Like we'd have to have a whole episode about it. Um, but I strongly recommend anybody interested in food systems to have a look at this article. There's a great table, um, there's, or there's a couple of tables in the, in the article that show you how they split everything up. But essentially it, it's interesting, especially having been at COP where I was there in the food pavilion surrounded by all different kinds of people that would have fit into different, into these four different uh, kind of boxes. It's, it's, it's really interesting to think about the importance of collaborating between worldviews because, you know, as we've talked about many times, it does feel sometimes like we're all in our silos and I don't know if we're making the most progress being stuck in our silos. So I just, I think it's, it's just an, a fantastic report. It, it gives you this kind of structure on how to think about the different ways to imagine the best future of food. And I just, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I, I agree. I like you shared this with me uh, a couple of days ago and I dug, I dug into it and I, I, I echo everything that you're saying. And I mean, like as, as, as someone who spent a number of years in, in management consulting, I love myself a good, a good heat map. And um, I, but I, but this one's like a worthwhile heat map in my mind, where it's to your point, there's, there's always these talks of these opposing worldviews on the food system or, or any topic really. But um, for such an important topic, I think it's really, uh, it's necessary to look at ways that there's overlap in, in belief systems and, and this does just a really good job at saying, hey, people who are in different groups who think that you're on opposing ends, there's actually a lot of overlap in the underlying beliefs of how you're looking at, at, at the different facets of the food system, how we produce food, how we consume food. So uh, I, I just, I, I, really, I really like it. I think um, it's, it's also worth calling out that while it does bucket people into these four categories, uh, the the authors they do call out that like it's probably a rare thing that someone perfectly fits into one category where the reality is most people have they they believe eighty percent of one category and then the other twenty percent is kind of mixed throughout and that's an important thing to bring up bring up because that just shows that there's even even a greater likelihood that we can all collaborate and find common ground. And is there one solution that's going to make everyone happy? No, but there's probably various solutions that will make many different people across these groups happy. So, I mean, I, I, I like it. I think that this is a really worthwhile, uh, worthwhile piece to dig into for sure. Absolutely. It's it, yeah. And, and I think I'm, I mean, I, I haven't finished with, I, I would love to interview the authors and, and go deeper on this. And, you know, I, I, I'm just such a believer in the importance of kind of breaking down barriers and, and, and working together. And this was just, it was just a really good framework for how to think about all, because we, we all want to believe that, and, and do believe, we, you know, we've got the best interest of humanity and global food systems at heart. So it was really interesting to see these four buckets and have the authors lay out well, here in this bucket, they're, you know, they're, they're really privileging 
this, you know, they're, they're focusing on this thing versus in this other bucket, they're focusing on something else. And so everyone's focusing on what they think is the biggest impact or the biggest lever to have impact. Um, and just a good reminder that, you know, working together is probably the best, the best way forward and, and will allow us to have even bigger impact. So hundred percent, hundred percent. What are we ending on? What is the positive story of the day? Yeah, positive. So I'm actually going to be taking two stories and, and finding the, the commonality amongst them. And that's my positive. So the, the first one is that California Cultured, which is a US, uh, US-based startup that produces uh, plant cell culture cocoa. Uh, they, are, they just signed a 10-year commercial partnership agreement with uh, the, the Japanese chocolate uh, corporate that I don't, I'm, I'm going to butcher the name. I don't know if it's Meiji, Maiji, Meiji, but that, yeah, it's Meiji. Meiji. Yeah. All right. Meiji. There you go. This is my American showing in me. I don't know how to say anything, um, oh, but they perfect. partnered with, with, with Meiji and uh, it's a 10 year commercial partnership agreement. This is, this is a no joke agreement, not just a one-off, one-off trial or something like that. So that's, that's one. And then the other other piece of news was U.S. startup Bond Pet Foods partnered with Hills Pet Nutrition, um, and they announced that uh, a milestone has been met. So Bond Pet Foods has been able to deliver two tons of their precision fermentation-based proteins uh, that will be included in an animal-free pet food product that Hills Pet Nutrition will be, will be working on. So the reason why these are, I'm, I'm talking about both of these and why it's the positive is I I've said it before and I'll say it again. I really think that the path to generating large scale impact and change in the food system is not startups fighting with large incumbents or strategics, but working together and collaborating with them. There's no chance that any startup is going to be able to recreate in a five to 10 year period, the, the distribution and manufacturing capabilities and just consumer reach ability of any of the large strategics that have been built over decades, if not centuries. So I love seeing not only collaborations, but successful collaborations. Like these are big, big milestones being met, big agreements being agreed to uh, that will last 10 plus years. So I, I see this as just a lot of progress with the startup community and the large incumbent strategic community coming together. Uh, and this gets me excited for sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many takeaways here and it kind of echoes the, the big story that we started with, the Nestle story. I mean, big food companies have no choice but to rethink their supply chains. They've got to decarbonize their supply chains. They've got to de-nitrogen their supply chains. They've got to de-methane their supply chains. They've got to de-risk their supply chains. So cacao, I mean, I don't know how many people follow like global food commodity prices as you do, but cacao has had an absolutely abysmal week. There have been many issues in Ghana, which produces 60% of the world's cacao. And so cacao prices are through the roof. And actually, Steve, we forgot to say happy Valentine's Day, which it is today. So yes, I know, you know, um, to, to all the lovers out there, it's also a big day for selling chocolate and chocolate prices have gone through the roof. And so companies like Meiji are not just 
you know, reveling in innovation for, for fun and because they're, they're futuristic or because they're techno optimists, they're de-risking a, a supply chain that is in danger. I, I, I just sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm a bit gobsmacked at how few people realize that the, the food on their plate is going to change. You know, we did a piece last year where we talked about the 15 crops that are, there's 15 foods that basically we eat all the time that are going to, you know, possibly change or cost a lot more or not be on our plates in the next 10 to 15 years. Chocolate is absolutely at the top of the list. So it's not really a question of if, it's a question of when. Um, and, and, you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of companies that are working on these, um, these kind of chocolate, cacao-free th uh, things like, you know, Planet A Foods in Germany and Win Win in the UK and, and Voyage Foods in the US and California Cultured, you know, they're, they're gaining steam because big food companies know that they need a plan B. They really do. Absolutely. And then even on the, on the pet food side, like 25 to 30% of all meat consumed or, or produced in, in the world goes to pet food. So um, like the need is there, the impact is there. Um, and all the startups that are either focusing on, on cocoa or pet food or any of that, they know that need and they, they're trying to address it. And I just think it's uh, super smart to work with the big players because that's what's going to be successful at the end of the day and, and help move the needle. So, um, yeah. And, and on the pet front, it's important to also remember there's a huge demographic trend at play. People are not having kids in many, many economies, South Korea, Japan, China, Hong Kong, like, like birth rates are plummeting, even in Catholic France, which has always been a bright spot in Europe for, for having babies. The birth rate has gone down by 3% or something. Uh, actually, don't quote me on that. It's gone down. I forgot the number, but everywhere there are signs that people are having fewer kids and having more, guess what? They're replacing it with pets. So the pet industry is just booming. So, and, and, and again, big pet food companies, they need to decarbonize. So it's just really, really important to look at the broader trends and not just look at kind of the, the, the more kind of siloed, you know, oh, we need to replace animal foods with plant foods. It, it goes beyond that. There's a de-risking here. So, um, so we're going to